0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? If you have a Bible, open to Deuteronomy chapter 10 is where we are this morning. As uh, we mentioned last couple weeks, we're taking a break out of our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, a two week break last week we looked at what water baptism uh, is meant to portray the gospel and the church as we saw three of our brothers and sisters water baptized and then uh, this morning as we've alluded to on uh, several points throughout this gathering already that uh, we are taking time out to celebrate and think about and consider Our role as a church in the care for the fatherless, for the orphan around the world. For the past few years, our church has participated in a national movement of churches called Orphan Sunday, which I think actually is usually the first Sunday of the month, which I guess would have been last Sunday or the Sunday before. But we have chosen to observe and to think about and consider our role as a church to care for the orphan today on this Sunday because. It is in conjunction with our banquet this evening when we were able to have uh, Rick Morton come and speak to us. And so um, we are going to be looking at our responsibility as a church to care for the fatherless. And then next week, we'll get back into into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And we'll be for several more weeks and maybe take a break for Christmas and then into the new year. Um as you 're finding Deuteronomy chapter ten, as always, if you 're new or you 're maybe not yet a believer and you 've just been invited by a friend and you don 't have a bible we 'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can um, find in the chair rack in front of you you 're welcome to use that Bible today and you 're welcome to keep that Bible as as our gift to you as you 're finding Deuteronomy chapter ten, let me just uh, Hit the pause button for just a moment and take a, a moment to update you about uh, some important news at Crosspoint about a, a recent staffing uh, change. Hopefully, you all received an email earlier this week um, from the church. If you didn't, um, let me just kind of uh, just sort of summarize and read that email for you today. Um, we wrote to inform the church that Wayne Sheely has resigned as one of Crosspoint's pastors on Monday. November 2nd, so it had been a, a, almost two weeks ago, he submitted a letter of resignation and requested a week for he and Beth to inform their close friends and community group before we presented it to the church. So that's why we didn't say anything about it last week. Wayne has taken a job in Columbia, South Carolina, where the Sheelys will be relocating in the coming weeks. And in fact, he starts that job uh, tomorrow, I believe. Given the the quick timing of this news, there are three things that we we want to make absolutely clear. First, there has been absolutely no sin or moral or ethical failure involved whatsoever. Wayne has been uh, a godly man and above reproach throughout his time on staff here. And also, let me add parenthetically that we didn't include in the letter, uh, but several have asked as they read it, is that there's been no theological disagreement or dispute. Secondly, Crosspoint has benefited greatly from Wayne's contributions to the st- to the church during the last four and a half years. In particular, our children's ministry and community groups have been blessed uh, thoroughly and abundantly by his organizational oversight and pastoral work. We are very thankful for the fruitfulness we've experienced in these areas and other areas that are directly directly attributable to his labors and leadership. And I could. Really, spend a lot more time just just thanking the Lord and allotting uh, how grateful we are for for much of the fruit that that Wayne has brought to our church. three having said that that we recognize that there have been uh, just significant differences which ultimately, over the past few years, as we have labored to, we just realized that we could not overcome, and it has brought us to this point where we think that we'd be more fruitful. I'm um, serving the Lord apart. Obviously, this has been difficult to process you know, and to present to you because we, we love the Shilis dearly and we're very grateful for them. And let me stress that as questions arise, we welcome you. Uh, we welcome and in fact encourage you to reach out to any of the pastors or elders. It certainly doesn't have to be me. It can be me, but it doesn't have to be. We, we really encourage and welcome you to reach out to any of us. Finally, let me say that we love the Sheelys. We love Wayne and Beth and their children, and pray for ongoing fruitfulness and faithfulness wherever the Lord takes them, uh, whether they stay in Columbia for a long time or beyond. Parting ways is certainly painful, but we we pray that the Lord will use this to sanctify us all and to bring about just greater faithfulness for the church um, and for the Sheelys, uh until the Lord comes, that he would find us faithful and our hands on the plow. So again, let me just encourage you, if you have any questions, don't, don't hesitate to ask any of us. And, um, and now let me just pray uh, for the Sheelys. pray for us as a church. Um, and in light of just, we've prayed several times, just pray for just our world, for Paris, for our country, and then for, for our text that we're, we're going to dive into. Father, we, uh, we are so grateful for your kindness to us. You wake us up in the morning. You give us breath and life. We are uh, grateful on a, a challenging uh, moment like this in a challenging moment where we are just grateful for our, our brother and sister and this sweet family that we uh, are very grateful for, but recognizing that at times you lead us um, in, in separate ways. We we just pause to honor and thank you for Wayne's uh, gifts and his contributions and their family's contributions to our church. And we pray that you would go before them to what is next, that you would use them in mighty ways, that, uh, that you would bring great glory to your name uh, through uh, Wayne and Beth and their family's continued ministry uh, in other places. Lord, we as we think about this and we think about our world and just the turbulence of of, of just the climate of our culture and the world culture, again, we pray for France and we ask for your grace there. We pray for wisdom for our political leaders. We realize that um, when we may think that the war on terror is drawing to an end, it seems like it is ramping back up and that has tremendous and huge implications for Fort Benning and men and women in this room. We pray for our soldiers that are in harm's way. And for soldiers in this room that may be in harm's way in the future. We pray that you, as Romans 13 has, has told us, that you would raise up even imperfect governments who would bear the sword in the form of the American military or other government's military to bring, bring justice to these demonic and satanic forces of Isis. Lord, we pray that your will would be done. We know that as Paul has prayed earlier this morning, that nothing is outside of your sovereign control. But Lord, the most appropriate thing for us to do now is to turn our attention to your word and to worship you and to respond to you and to heed your scriptures and to think deeply about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so help us now do that faithfully and earnestly. Pray for believers in this room that they would be stirred and convicted and encouraged. I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, that by your grace you would call them, that you would open eyes, that you would make somebody who was fatherless, who was separated from you because of their sin, that you would adopt them into your family spiritually and make them, as Reynolds read from Romans 8, one of your sons or daughters by grace. Today, even do that today, Lord, as we think about what it means to be a child of God. Help us now as we look at your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well... I spent a few years, in fact, I came here 20, uh, I need to update the years, it was 1993, and these years just keep trucking along, don't they? What is it, 2000? So 22 years ago, I came to Fort Benning as a young soldier, and I was introduced to the world of acronyms. If (laughs) If any of you have spent any time around the military or the army, you know about all the acronyms in the army. One of my favorite acronyms in the army is BLUFF. In fact, that's how they start emails or any correspondence. It's BLUFF, and that stands for bottom line. I got a soldier right here laughing. Bottom line up front. So I'm going to give you the bottom line up front of what I think we should be thinking about from this text in Deuteronomy chapter 10. The bottom line is that because of our willful sin, we are all... Orphans by nature and by choice. We have orphaned ourselves from our Creator and Father God. And God, in His grace, has adopted a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and He has made them by His mere and sheer sovereign grace. He has made a great multitude of people His children. And the purpose of this sovereign grace is not just to adopt a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue so that they can just be a, cold, a cul-de-sac of that grace. But he has done this to enable his adopted children to be the means by which he displays his marvelous grace and character and gospel to an onlooking world. And he then uses the grace that he's giving his adopted children to be the means to adopt more children into his family. And one way that we're going to meditate on today, one way that God calls his people to do this is to care for, The least of these, in particular, to care for the fatherless, people that are physically fatherless, orphaned. So that, I want us to look at a text in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that I think just encapsulates what our responsibility as the people of God is to the fatherless. Now, a little backdrop because admittedly, we like to preach through books of the Bible. And we are parachuting down into Deuteronomy chapter 10 just kind of out of nowhere this morning as we're taking a break through the Sermon on the Mount. So it's always helpful to give a little bit of context about where we are in the Bible and where we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy is the last book of the first five books of the Bible, oftentimes called the Pentateuch or the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, At the beginning, of course, Genesis, I think most of us are at least somewhat familiar with Genesis is the account of God's creation and the account of God creating mankind and how mankind has fallen. And because of our sin, we are orphaned. We are separated from God. But God does not leave a humanity in that state. He chooses a man called Abraham out of this orphaned race of people who are separated from God. And he calls this man Abraham and he says, through you I am going to make a people, I'm going to make a family. And so the rest of the book of Genesis is God's dealing with and establishing this first family that eventually becomes the nation of Israel by the end of the book of Genesis. But they are still rebellious even though God has... Has chosen them. They're still rebellious. And so they, at the beginning of the second book of the Bible, Exodus, find themselves in captivity, in Egyptian captivity. And God rescues them out of their captivity. And He, he, he literally pries the hands of Pharaoh off of his people. And He, he causes his people to be rescued from this captivity. Of Egypt, which is a kind of picture of how God rescues all of his people from the tyranny of our true captor, which is sin. And God miraculously, not because of anything in Israel that they did, but miraculously rescues his people from Egypt and he moves them out. It's the great Exodus. They, the sea parts and he. He rescues them and then the sea crashes in on on the foes of God's people. And then the rest of the book of Exodus is God giving His people His law. He saved them. Now He's going to tell them how they are supposed to live. And they wander in the desert. And then after Exodus comes Leviticus, which is another book just full of laws and codes and regulations and stipulations of how God... Has told his people they must approach him because he is holy. And even though he has redeemed him, they still have much sanctification to go through. And so Leviticus is just a, a book talking about how God's people should rightly worship him and approach him and atone for their continued sin. Then after that, it comes the book of Numbers, which is basically just an exposition of how God's people have wandered in the desert. See, God had called them to a land that would be full of milk and honey, a promised land. He rescued them from captivity, but they continued to be disobedient to him, and they wandered in the desert, just sort of the promised land, and that is the, really the narrative of the book of Numbers. And then Deuteronomy, where we are this morning, is the nation of Israel... Right at the brink of entering into the promised land that God told them he would bring them into generations before. And it is Moses, their leader, who led them out of captivity through God's sovereign hand. It is Moses giving them really one last final sermon on how God has called his people to live in light of the fact that he has rescued them by his grace. So Deuteronomy is really just a series of Moses' a couple at the end of his life sermons, as he's realizing he's about to die before Israel gets into the promised land. Moses is saying, in light of all that God has done, in generations to come, this is how you should live. And now we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where Moses is speaking to Israel about how they should live, and in particular, about how, in light of what God has done in them, how they should be a people that treat the least of these, in particular, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So, with that, let's start reading in uh, verse 12. And um, we're going to read a little bit and stop. And I want us to see three truths that arise from this text that will just develop along the way. And then we'll consider what, what implications this text has on our life as, as a New Testament church. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verse 12. And you know, you realize that now that I'm in my mid-40s and my knees hurt and I snap, crackle, and pop when I wake up in the morning, I haven't quite got down the flow on these glasses. Reynolds is far better at that I He's got a couple years on me. So what I've done is I've actually, um, on my, on my um, electronic Google machine, uh, uh, computer, uh, they have this <laughs> font size thing. And so I've gone from 10-point font to 14-point font. So I don't need um, these glasses as much anymore unless, we, unless I need to look up a verse real quick. So verse 12 of Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you. They're on the brink of the promised land, about to enter into. Moses is giving them a last few sermons. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding today for your good. Behold, the lord your god belong to the lord your god belong heaven and the heaven of heavens the earth with all that is in it verse 15 yet the lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them you above all peoples as you are this day okay so truth number 1 that i want us to see rise from this text, and it really comes from verse 15, and it is this, that the Lord chose to love his people solely, merely, because of grace and nothing else. Let me read verse 15 again, so we see that truth in the text. It says, yet the Lord... So he's saying, Israel, here you are on the edge, about to enter in. This is what it means to be not just redeemed and rescued, but now to live in light of your great salvation. Live this way and remember, verse 15, Verse yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are to this day. In other words... God has done this great work in you, Israel. And I think clearly we can make direct application to our lives individually as Christians, to those that God has saved. God has done this not because he scanned the earth and said that would be a good player for my team. This person's got some gifts. That person can sing. This person can teach. That person can organize people. Let's gather together uh, an all-star team. No, he does it solely because of his grace. Listen to what uh, Moses says a couple chapters earlier in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter chapter 7 about this very thing. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then the question maybe before we read verse 7 is, why has God chosen Israel to be his treasured people above all the peoples on the earth? And I think we can ask ourselves the same question. Why has God chosen to awaken our souls if we are trusting in him so that we can see the beauty of what God has done in Christ on the cross to atone for our sin, to reconcile us, to make us his children? Why has God done that? Is it because of something noteworthy in us? No, verse 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king. What is the reason that God says, that Moses says God chose to set his affection on Israel? Verse 8 says, he did this because the Lord loves you. Because of his free and uninfluenced sovereign grace. He loves you, Israel. He loves you, Christian, because he loves you. We are saved by grace. Now, many people say this, but I'm not sure that we always understand what it means. What does it mean? It means that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God. I was meditating on this great hymn, Rock of Ages, written, I believe, back in the 1800s by a guy named Augustus Toplady, which if you're going to have a name, that's one to have right there, right? (laughs) Right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Right? Don't, do you see sometimes, we do this, I do this. I caught myself saying this the other day, thinking about a person who I know to be an unbeliever in conversation with another friend, who, a, mutual, a Christian friend who we have a mutual friend who we know is an unbeliever. And don't you often say this thing, and this particular person just has wonderful gifts, you know, very charismatic, and, just, and you say, oh, I wish that the Lord would save that person because, oh, imagine what God could do with that person. Now, I think we probably have all said things like that, and I'm not beating that. I mean, I just said that about a week ago. But when we think that way, don't we sort of, that's just sort of hints at, it belies that we still don't quite sometimes get That God chooses to set his love on people, a nation of Israel, and individual Christians in the since as many people as he saved, not because of anything good in them, not because anything that we do, not because we first decided to come to church and respond and heed his call, not because we mustered up faith or more willpower or decided to finally follow through on our New Year's resolution or began reading our Bible. Those may feel like movements that we are making the initiative and taking the initiative on, but behind and underneath all of that is free, uninfluenced, sovereign grace. God loves his people because he loves his people. Now, if you've been around Crosspoint for a long time, you know we make that point a lot, right? <laughs> Amen, thank you. But that is, first of all, it's super important because it humbles us, it deepens our worship because we don't take any credit for our salvation but it becomes very important then as we look at then what God calls us to do, and we're going to get to that in a second. So truth number one is that the Lord chose to love his people solely because of grace. Now look at verse 16. It says, in light of that, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, right? So, of course, what he's talking about here in circumcision is he's not referring to physical circumcision, which was given earlier on in uh, the, the Bible in Genesis as a way of marking off physically Uh, God's people, but that was never meant to be a mere exterior marker. It was always meant to be, to point to a deeper spiritual reality and what the circumcision or the cutting away of our rebellion, our flesh, that God is ultimately going for is not some exterior conformity, but it's the interior issues of the heart. And so he's saying, because God has set his love on you, not because of anything that you have done, but because he has given you his grace, now, therefore, circumcise your heart, soften your heart, and don't be stubborn and live in this way. So that gives rise to our second truth. His people, who he's loved by sheer sovereign grace, his people obey Because they're loved, not so they'll be loved. You see, understanding the difference between that there is really understanding the difference between the gospel of grace and religion. We are able, as God's people, to obey Him because we have already been loved, not so that if we obey enough, He hopefully will hit the little... You know, meter that gets us to the point of acceptance that then we will be loved if we obey enough. And we see this pattern in the Old Testament. Notice, friends, just the pattern of God's plan of redemption in the Old Testament. Notice that the rescue of God's people from Exodus by the Passover, by the slaying of the lamb, as a picture of how Jesus, the lamb, would be slayed for our sin, and then the parting of the Red Sea comes before God gives his commands on how they are to live. So Exodus, salvation by grace, comes before the command of how to live as God's people. It's not, oh, Genesis 3's happened, Adam and Eve rebelled, everybody's jacked up. I tell you what, here's my plan. I'm going to give you some laws, and if you will obey them to a certain sort of ambiguous level then I will rescue you out of your captivity. No, that's not it. It's not a meet me halfway. It is God saying you are in captivity, completely unable to loose yourself from that captivity, and I am going to rescue you miraculously, sovereignly, by grace, Make you my people before you've done anything to make yourself worthy in my eyes. And now, because you're my people, in light of that, live in this way. We see that pattern also in the New Testament. We see that grace comes first and then the ability to carry out the command. We see it especially in Paul's epistles. Just a few, just I want to show this to you. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, If you have your Bible open, it'll be on the screen. I want you to notice we talk a lot about how Paul has this pattern in his letters. You see it especially in Ephesians and Colossians where he will give, he will say, this is what has happened to you if you're a Christian. This is what has been done. Now in light of that, this is what you must do. It's... Getting that order right is imperative to understanding what it means to be a Christian in the gospel. It's not, if you will do this, this is what God will do. It is, this is what God has done, the indicative of the gospel, the statement of the gospel. And in light of that, this is the imperative of how you should live. So Ephesians 2, Paul says there in the first couple of verses that you're dead in your sins. And the trespasses of this world. And then he says, even though we were dead in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound a lot like Deuteronomy chapter 7, where it says that he loved you, Israel, because he loved you. Not because you had a good arm and a good 40 time and you could bench 350. Right? He loved you because he loved you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And there's so much more woven into that. How does God save us? It's not just like he snaps his finger and says, oh, okay, everything's forgotten. No, no, no. Listen to this closely, friends. What he does is he makes us alive because he's made Christ alive. We were dead in our sins We were justly the objects of God's wrath and punishment, but God in his great kindness and love Sends his son Jesus to be the one and only perfect human, the one God man, to live a perfect life where we have all rebelled and made ourselves orphans. Jesus is the one true son, comes and becomes a man, lives a perfect life, then lays down his life on the cross as a sacrifice, lays down his life on the altar, on the cross, to sacrifice himself, to substitute himself, to bear the punishment that should have been ours. He extinguishes it, he absorbs it because he's infinitely holy and righteous. And then he rises again in victory, taking back the keys to life and death. And now because he is the victorious king, he reigns forevermore. And now he is able to give life. And so God can forgive us, not because he just snapped his fingers and said, I'm going to shake the etch-a-sketch and start over. But because he has justly poured out his right wrath on his son instead of his people, And because Jesus is not only a perfect man, but the infinitely holy God, he is able to bear the full extent of the wrath of God and satisfy it. And then rise again in victory over. And now because Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's alive. He is the victor. He's able. Now God makes us alive opens up our dead hearts and eyes so that we can see the substitute, the grace, the rescue that has happened for us in the cross. So that's the gospel. Now then, you after Paul establishes, this is what happened to you. What do dead people do? How do dead people contribute to the resuscitation? Think about it. Yeah, thank you, they don't. Hey doc, get a couple of those little, you know, boom things or whatever and turn it up a little bit because I'm out I'm really out. I've been out for a while. Charge that puppy up. No, no, not over there a little bit, a little bit higher. No, a little bit. That's not what dead people do. Dead people just get up because something from outside of them happened to them, right? And that's the gospel. And then later on in Ephesians 4, Paul, then in light of the gospel, starts in verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then he spends the rest of chapter 4 talking about this is how you live in light of the fact that God has given you grace. He's not saying this is how you must live so that God may potentially be graceful to you, gracious to you. We see the same pattern. In Colossians, I won't take the time to walk you through it, but we see that grace comes first, then the command. So his people obey because they've been loved, because they've been adopted, because they were orphans, and not because of anything good in them, but because God in his sovereign, kind, sheer grace, because he set his love on them, they can now live out his commands, which then brings us to verse 17. And we'll see our final truth and meditate on it and close with this, verse 17. So in light of the fact that God loved you because he loved you, and in light of the fact because he brought you back to life, Israel, and brought you back to life, Christian, and saved you by sheer grace, now now you can obey him. And now he's gonna talk about some specific ways in which he does command his people to obey him. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, verse 19, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Think of all the things that God have could, have, could have said to Israel in light of His salvation of them, and He says, "There's, there's, there's, there's some least of these. There's some people that are very needy. And in light of Your great salvation, I want you to execute justice, to care for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. And then in verse 19, I think Moses is using sojourner as really just a, as a sort of catch-all phrase for the three that He mentioned in verse 18." Wrapped up in that is care for these people, the least of these. Love the sojourner. And I think implicit in that is love the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. For you were orphans. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So this brings us to this third truth that we'll end on as we think about it. First, the Lord chose to love his people because of his grace. Secondly, his people obey because they're loved, not so that they'll be loved. And then specifically in our text, and all throughout the Scriptures, we see God, this is the third truth, God calls His people to care for the fatherless, widow, and sojourner. This theme of caring for the fatherless as a consequence of receiving God's grace and being God's people is a theme that runs really all throughout the Scriptures, and in particular in Deuteronomy. So let me just take you on just a little a little tour quickly through Deuteronomy and Moses' call to care to God's people, to care specifically for the least of these, in particular, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. Deuteronomy chapter 14. And in this chapter, Moses is talking about clean and unclean foods, and he's talking about giving and tithes and their abundance as a nation. And he says in verse 29, it'll be up on the screen, and the Levite, Because he has no portion or inheritance with you. And the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands to do. So he's saying take care of these people as the people of God. This is who you used to be. You used to be the fatherless and the sojourner, and I rescued you. I adopted you by grace. Now care for them. We see it continued in Deuteronomy chapter 16, just a couple verses over in verse 11. He's talking about these feasts that he wants his people to celebrate to remember their salvation from Egypt to remember uh, the Passover, to remember their rescue through the Red Sea. So he's saying basically celebrate, party. And I think Christians need to do a better job of like righteously partying, right? You know, I mean, we know how to unrighteously party, many of us, don't we? And we regret it. But just read through De- Deuteronomy, read through Leviticus. Where are around chapter 16, somewhere in there, there's this day of atonement, where basically the tenor of the chapter is, you better party, or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> God wants his people to rejoice. Yeah, thank you, sister. <laughs> he wants his people to rejoice. He wants us to eat, drink, and be merry. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to, to celebrate, to be a reflection. of Okay, I'm getting off into another sermon here. Let me get back to the text. <laughs> deuteronomy sixteen and you shall re- yeah, somebody 's like, "No, keep going on that I want I want a little bit more of that <laughs> verse eleven deuteronomy sixteen and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, and your female servant, the Levite who is within you, your town 's the sojourner." and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell. Down to 14, another feast. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. In other words, make your banquet table big, man and have lots of food, because God has been good to you. And friends, listen, we we can see the spiritual connection, can't we? We've got a bunch of stuff as a church, right? We should be the type of place of abundance where where we can bring people from all, all walks of life, man, the downtrodden, the sojourner, the people on the down and out, and specifically as we think about this today, the orphan. Come, 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 and eat at the table of God's Goodness and friends, you realize we're not just talking about one meal, we're talking about eat at the table of God's goodness and be part of the family of God, and specifically be part of maybe some physical families in this church. It continues, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, we see it again. Listen to this, verse 17, Deuteronomy 24, verse 17. He's, he's saying just some miscellaneous commands here. He says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command, remember, you were a sojourner you were fatherless before God chose you as his people. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheep in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourn of the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Translation, if you've got a bunch of stuff, don't keep buying trinkets and hoard them for yourselves, but let's share God's goodness for the sake of bringing the least of these into God's family. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. And we could read a few more. God calling his people to have a heart for the least of these, the sojourner the widow, the fatherless. Not because there's some strange set of classification of people, but because when we rightly understand the gospel, we realize that we were fatherless spiritually. We were sojourners before God gave us his grace. And then notice that he gives this command to all of Israel. Moses is preaching to everybody. Moses is giving this command of God, through him as his mouthpiece, to all of Israel, not just some who are called to the specific ministry of caring for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Implication, clearly, is that God is calling all of us as Christians to care for the least of these, the fatherless. This command carries through to God's people in the New Testament. James one twenty seven says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I don't have time to draw that out, but you understand that when James is saying to visit orphans, he's not just saying to just maybe once a year take a Christmas basket, as wonderful as that may be. It's to care for them in their plight. This is just a shorthand of God's thread of caring for these people all throughout his scriptures. This is what it means to be the recipients of God's sheer grace, to be the type of people that care for the type of people that we all were. So what does this look like for us? And I end with this. What does this look like for us as a church? In light of our specific responsibility to care for the physically orphaned in our world. Some in this room certainly are called to adopt children physically into their home or to foster. Not all of us, but some certainly are. And there are many in this room in this church that have done that. We've got 15 families or so that have adopted, maybe more, and several others that are fostering. Estimates on the number of orphans in the world. I had 140 written down, that 140 million written down. Will, in his prayer earlier, I think it's up to maybe 150 million orphans worldwide. Estimates of the number of children in foster care in even just Muskogee and Harris County and Phoenix City uh, counties. There's just dozens, if not hundreds, of children. And there are families in this church who have rolled up their sleeves and done the very hard work of caring for a child, bringing that child into their home, loving that child, knowing that that child may, may shortly leave, which would be great for them to be reunited to the parent, but that, that's hard, emotionally taxing work. And not all, but some in this church may be called to do that. Friends, we live in a culture of death. Death where our government, our politicians, and many organizations are encouraging women to kill unwanted babies. It's so crazy, and I say this with every bit of grace to anybody in this room that's participated in an abortion. Know that there's grace in the Lord and forgiveness, but it's so hypocritical and our culture is so mixed up in what a person is, that a pregnant mother can be on her way to the abortion clinic, and if she is hit by a drunk driver on the way to the abortion clinic, and she is killed and her baby is killed, the law would charge that drunk driver with two homicides. But if that drunk driver narrowly misses that mother and she makes it to the abortion clinic, minutes later, if a doctor demonically sucks that baby out of her womb, it's legal. And it happens in Columbus. That's the type of view our culture has of the fatherless. And we as recipients of God's grace are called to do more than sing our favorite songs, critique sermons, be rude to waitresses, and brick the outside of our building and pat ourselves on the back because we're a growing church. Shame on us if we're satisfied with that. Some in this room are called to adopt. Some foster. Not all of us. Some in this room are called to help financially. It costs, especially international adoption, can cost upwards of $30,000, $50,000. Some in this room have the ability to, as we read in Deuteronomy 24, not go back and pick up the wheat that you spilled so that you can just put it in your storehouse. But to leave it for the sojourner, the fatherless, the least of these. Some are called to adopt, some are called to help financially. All of us, if we are adopted children of God, all of us in this sanctuary are called in some way to care for, to be part of a culture, a city set on a hill, a church that creates a culture where adoption and foster care is part of our heartbeat. Maybe that's just prayer and emotional support. You're just babysitting, making meals. Maybe you're just coming tonight, and you don't necessarily feel called to adopt or foster, and you don't have the means to give financially to help, but maybe you just want to say, look, I just want to be part of the people of God, That just, I'm just, I want to put my heart on the table and say, God, how might you use me even in some intangible way of encouragement? Lord, here I am. All of us, all of us are called to do that. And the text ends this way and we'll end with it. Verse 20 You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him. And hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. As we contemplate what God has done for us, and as we praise him for it, God, may it not stop in here and in here, but may it flow out to the fatherless in our city and across the world. Let's pray. And as our heads are bowed before our pray, let me just mention that... um, if the Holy Spirit has just put your heart in some way um, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you realize that you are not trusting in Christ; that you've been trying to obey so that He will accept you. But now you realize that that's not the gospel. It's, in fact, the gospel is is that He sets His love on people and then enables them to obey and you're realizing that I think that might be an indication that God has done that for you. Before you leave this room today speak with somebody that you know to be a Christian. Come talk to one of the pastors or just anybody that you know to be a Christian. Write down on the connection card that you want to trust in Christ and we will follow up with you and sit down with you and care for you help you Understand more about what it means to follow Jesus and to be His. his. Secondly, if you're a Christian and you maybe just kind of came today and didn't know what it was about and now the Lord has pricked your heart, don't let the fact that you have not RSVP'd tonight uh, stop you from coming. Just come tonight. Just come and... Let's gather around some people in our church that are adopting and fostering. Let's open up our hearts to be open to the fact that God may call some of us. Maybe he's done that even today. Maybe he'll do it tonight. Maybe he'll do it in the coming weeks as you get to know people in this church who are doing that. Listen to this dear brother, Rick Morton. I encourage you to come tonight and consider more deeply in a more focused way what what our responsibility is as God's people with that, let's, let's pray now. Father, as we, as we respond to your word, I, I pray that you would, because you have loved us, now move on our hearts to obey you. Father, that's going to look a thousand different ways in all the hearts that are gathered here this morning. May we respond rightly. do your work and as a result of this Sunday Lord I, I pray that decades from now a family in this room would look back and say that was the day that the Lord called us to do this or that and that God you might as a result of your moving in hearts in this room today that there might be lives fatherless Actual children in the world, that in this moment you are setting in motion your eternal plan to bring them into a family where they will hear the gospel and be cared for and loved and be adopted, not just physically into this family in this room, but spiritually into your family. Lord, maybe this be the day that that eternal plan that you have for an orphan out in the world today, would begin to take shape. And we pray this for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, for the sake of the sojourner and the fatherless. In Jesus' name, amen.